0: What a great song. Good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. It's great to have you. If you're a guest, welcome. Thank you for being a part of today. If you're a guest this morning, whether you're tuning in online or you're in the room, I just want you to know it's going to be a little longer than usual today. So just hang in there, all right? Or come back next week. It'll be shorter, I promise. Uh, But we're going to try and get through this kind of quick. But it's a big topic today, and it's an important topic today in this series of mistaken identity. As you think about that song and the lyric of that song that says, "It, it may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. Is this the vision of God that you have? Is it too good to be true? Could you mark that? Could you think about your faith that way? For a long time in my life, uh, I couldn't have sung that song and thought about God in that way. I could in some respects, I could think about it, but there was always this, there was always this hint of fear. There was always this overlying uh, understanding that while, while, yes, God is too good to be true, but God is really just too good to be true for those of us that get it right. For those of us that maybe get it wrong or were born in a z- different zip code in a different area of the country with different faith understandings, then... Yeah, no, not so good for you. Because a lot of us have this kind of understanding and this idea and this framework for God that I like to call FBI God. Do you all know FBI God? FBI God, live PD God, cops God. Now, if you're in law enforcement, if you're a FBI officer, I don't mean to offend you. It's just my spiritual gift. Uh, But this is the best analogy I can use. Uh, to describe this idea that God is constantly on the lookout, right? God is that, that being that sits on the side of the road proverbially just waiting to catch you speeding. And God lights the sirens up, has been watching you, spying on you, taking notes, shows up and uh, gives you the ticket and says, we'll see you in court. Judge wants to talk to you. Right, and, and so we grow up, or we experience, or we live a life of faith, always kind of looking over our shoulder, right? Always wondering, when does this God show up, and did I do something wrong? becomes a, a question that marks kind of this spirituality in our lives. Uh, I think a lot of us tuning in now in the forward we've we've experienced this, and it, in this experience of a God that is angry, uh, uh, of God that is looking to bring judgment, a God that is so pure and so holy, can't stand to be around you, uh, has been around for a long time, and it finds itself in lots of different expressions of Christianity. Predominantly, and one of the most famous expressions of this view of God is from a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Jonathan Edwards? That's right. The history is going to start back in 1741 today. We're gonna walk through about 300 years. How's that sound? Well, I promise it'll get fast, it'll go faster. But Jonathan Edwards, uh, a preacher in New England. Now I, I kinda of spent 20 years of my life in, in New England and there's a few things you don't do if you're a preacher in New England. Uh, you don't talk bad about the Red Sox. You just don't do that. Uh, you, don't, you don't talk bad about Tom Brady. Uh, or the Pats. You don't do that either, although I did a little bit of that. But one thing you definitely don't do if you're from New England is talk bad about Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan, you just don't mess with him. Like, Like, spirituality in America, like, our faith is just grounded in Jonathan Edwards. This is the funniest thing to me. So, and as I, I want to read to you some parts of probably his most famous sermon, which is unfortunate, because I would never want to be judged by one sermon. And if I did have to be judged by one sermon, I would want to be the one to pick it, not history, right? Um, And so, I just want to pull this out, because it is a very popular and famous sermon called Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody ever heard of this? If you're in the room, you can slip your hand up if you've ever heard of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is actually seen as a piece of American literature that literature courses study and still read because of its imagery, the way he writes this sermon. Uh, and and this, is the, this is really at its truest sense, like FBI, CIA, spy God, right? Uh, angry God. This is what uh, he says. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? And the truth is, like that is... That is, in Jonathan Edwards, in this sermon, in a whole brand of Christianity, in a way in which that is really an understanding of God, uh, and it's because God is so pure and right. This is the way God sees you. That God can't. And here's the thing: I think many of us, many of us in the room, many who are tuning in line, maybe you've had this. You're going to have this talk like forwarded to you because you had a conversation with a friend and they said you've got to hear this. Like, many of us understand the pain because we've experienced the trauma of this FBI spirituality. And I have no other word for it other than it is a type of trauma. And I say that many of us have because many of us come from and are a part of and have been a part of what I would call like historically fundamentalist heritage Christianity. It's just a part of the American church. Uh, and, and And it stems back from the first great awakening. It stems back from that whole movement. But over these last 50 years, the, the Christian church, primarily the American church, has had this steady diet and weird thirst and longing for this kind of violent, vengeful Jesus. This Jesus of uh, rapture theology where one day Jesus is going to show up, and then all the good people are going to go away, and all the bad people are going to get their dues, and then we'll come back and there'll be this big battle. And, and we just kind of have for 50 years been given a steady diet of this theology, which interestingly enough, the idea of the rapture, if you've ever heard this word before, this idea is very new in terms of the history of Christianity you can't go back, like you have to go back to 1830 to first ever see anything written about this concept of a rapture. And it comes from a guy named Darby, John Darby. And what he did was, he, he saw a passage that he misunderstood in many, in, in a many, 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 many people's opinions, misunderstood one word out of one letter in the New Testament mistranslated it from the Latin, and has given birth to, in 1830, this huge movement around something called dispensationalism and the rapture. This idea that the way you interpret and understand Jesus' second coming, however you might think about that, is that it's going to be filled with wrath and blood. And basically, the cross didn't work. Nonviolent Jesus didn't work. It had its way. Now violent God shows back up, and just the great cleanup begins. And so this this happens and starts to merge in the 19th century uh, and then it's the, the, there's this bible that gets printed towards the end of the 19th century called it's the Darby Bible that deals with these dispensations. And it just begins to take steam. But there's an instance that happens in many of our lifetimes. And I know that some of you in this room, uh, some of these dates, you you weren't even born during these dates. I wasn't born during some of these dates. My point is, these things that I want to talk about for the next few moments have deeply affected the spiritual imaginations and lives of American Christians. And it really, there's a fundamental work that happened in 1970. A book came out that was called The Late Great Planet Earth. And in the late great planet Earth, the author comes and gives dates for when this rapture is going to happen, produces all kinds of evidence. Here's what it looks like. Here's the things that have to happen. One of the key events that really started to trigger and amp up uh, America's kind of infatuation with end times thinking and infatuation with the rapture was the establishment of Israel as a nation state. And that began to trigger all of this fantasy, really. Really? And so, this book gets written, and it begins to take hold of the Christian church in America. In 1972, a movie comes out called A Thief in the Night. Anybody seen A Thief in the Night or A Distant Thunder? Yeah. So, this movie, and if I can just pause and give you a little bit of my history in this to understand the trauma I've experienced, is that um, I'm I'm not a memory person. Like, I don't look back and go, oh. Like, my daughter was asking me this question. Yesterday, our son did his senior pictures. And, and my daughter asked me, like, do you get sad? I'm like, no, not about stuff like that. Like, yeah, good. Get out. You yeah, know, that's kind of my... <laughs> I'm proud of you. That's how you say it nicely. We're so proud of you. Like, if you're honest, it's like, yeah, go. I'm tired of cleaning up after you. right? Go make your own mess someplace else, right? No, but like I'm just not a like. Some people are scrapbookers. Any scrapbookers in the house? Like you just loved, yeah. Kathleen, I'm a scrapper, Right, that's awesome. I'm like I don't get it. You know, I'm just like it would never occur to me to like. We should make a picture album of the last vacation. Like what occurs to me is, we got to get back here. Let's save our money. Let's plan. Like I'm always just thinking about the future, right? So when I think about things in my past that have stuck with me, I I've I've learned in my soul care to say okay pause and reflect. Why is that moment still with you? What is it? And some of those moments that I have uh, from a religious perspective were traumatic. What I've learned is that many of my stories of faith growing up are beautiful, wonderful. I value and treasure them. But I have a handful that have shaped me in a way that have really distorted my ability to rest in a God that is good. And this is one of those moments. I was in fifth grade, Uh, at a private Christian school, and they showed one of these movies, *The Thief in the Night, to me, 10 years old. These movies are based on this idea that a whole bunch of people get taken, a whole bunch of people get left, and if you get left there's this like antichrist figure who shows up and you have to get what's called the mark of the beast. And if you don't get the mark of the beast, then uh, you basically can't have food or healthcare or anything like that. And there's a big war. And if you don't take the mark of the beast, they're gonna chop your head off. And the movie ends showing somebody getting their head chopped off. That's what I was showing at 10 years old. This is God. That stays with you. I'm telling you, you don't leave that behind. <laughs> so, so that ends up like sticking with me pretty hard. And, and forming uh, experiences in my life where we joke around about it now, like some of us that grew up in that culture about these, like, rapture scares. But imagine, like, hearing about this even as a younger child and being, like, 8, 9, 10 years old and, and coming home and not finding anybody and thinking you missed it, you know, and what that does to you as a kid, what that does to your like understanding of God and being able to then, because what triggers it is, oh, I missed it, but then I can tell you the things that I did wrong, you know, over maybe the course of 24 hours and why I missed it. And that, like, reciprocal pattern happening over and over again, basically for a very long time of foundation and formation of faith. Like, And so in 1972, we start to visualize and show these movies in churches all throughout America. 1972, another book came out by the same author called Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. And so it began to look and see here's all these things that are happening. 1974, a book came out uh, that dealt with it, was called Armageddon Oil in the Middle East Crisis. And so the imagination starts to take over of what's happening in the Middle East. This is where the Valley of Megiddo is. And if you look in Revelation, this is where this great giant battle is going to take place. Very literalist understandings of this work uh, and, and why it's all tied into oil. And so again, You have all these things happening around us in American culture that's starting to grip the minds and hearts of many, many people, many, many people. 1974 statistics around people going to church versus today is a different animal. And so our imagination is being taken hold of and being so focused in the grips of what became known as end times thinking, right? So people begin to really start. Another book comes out called um, The Liberation of Planet Earth. Uh, in 1976. In 19, and all this stems back to the first book in 1970. It's all tied into this, I think, this very influential book. In 1978, they make a movie of that book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, Orson Welles is a part of this project. And it, and it carries on into the 80s. 83, a book called The Rapture comes out. In 86, there's a book called Combat Faith, that basically the premise of this book, if I understand it right, was your faith has to evolve. We need a new kind of faith given what's getting ready to happen. And then in 1989, there's a book called The Road to Holocaust. All this to say, there's all this work happening in the 70s and 80s coming out of the Jesus movement. People are being heavily grounded in and consumed with end times thinking. What does it mean? It's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. Forget that Paul said that. Forget that the writer of Revelation said that, that it was going to happen really soon. They were all wrong, yet we just don't want to say it for some weird view of the like, but this is what's happening. And then there's an event that takes place in 1990 that I think just pours gasoline onto the fire of end times thinking. I mean, just it just begins to explode now. And it is the first Gulf War. So in 1990, we have the first Gulf War. Now, here's why I think this is so pivotal in this whole movement and, and, and how all of a sudden this end time thinking really, really gripped us as Christians in America, and even in a broader conversation around it, you think about it, it enters into politics. Like, now we have theology around end times, very little understanding of Revelation is being, like, verses are being quoted and things are being brought up in terms of, like, our government and our foreign policy. It's just starting here. But here's, here's why I think this is it. Because in 1990, when the Persian Gulf War breaks out, Desert Storm, it's the first war in the history of warfare that is being televised 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 24 hours a day, you can tune in live and watch us kill people. Watch everybody kill people. And I can remember, I was probably in seventh grade at that time, and I can remember going to youth group on Wednesday night. Y'all remember youth group? Anybody remember youth group? If you, if you don't, that's a good sign. It means you're kind of new to faith. Uh, and we're not cleaning up so much mess like I have to in my life, but um, maybe you remember it and and, and you're grounded. So we used to, Wednesday night, we'd go, and I loved youth group. Like, I'm not disparaging that. That was a, I mean, it got me through life. I mean, my friends, I mean, such a valuable group of people that influenced me. I loved it. But I can remember vividly this Wednesday evening being at the church and... And the war starting, and it being projected on a big screen, and in uh, one of the rooms, everybody's sitting around watching the war break out. And I can remember for the first time ever seeing through night vision bullets flying through the air, bombs being dropped, explosions, and people watching this, just watching it like it's entertainment. And so that just begins to fuel the imagination. The 90s are filled with this conversation of it. In 1991, they reprint, there's a reprint of the book, Armageddon Oil in the Middle East Crisis, right? And it carries on. Then what happens in 1995, which will start to, this will start to hit home with some of us. In 1995, the first book comes out of the Left Behind series right? And so now we have 12 years of left-behind books coming out that are taking this end-time thinking that stems back to one person in 1830 who mistranslates and misunderstands one word, comes up with the word rapture, and now we're writing a whole series of books, taking this very strange book called Revelation in the Bible, a few Bible verses, and turning it into this narrative where the, the hero of these books, and I've never read one book, okay? I've read about I've read from, but I've never read one of the books. But you have a, a, a hero who is left behind. But at the end of the day, like the end of these books, are just filled with you know passages about spraying people with Uzis and machine guns that are evil, and they're getting their deserve, what they deserve. So this is like the early 2000s, the late 90s. It's just it's there's, they're exploding. You can buy your Left Behind tie. Uh, you can buy your Left Behind Bible, you can buy your Left Behind T-shirt, the whole, the whole deal. And here's probably what I think is the most frightening and dangerous and scary and vile that, that like happened in this season, is between 1998 and 2004, there were 40 short stories written for teenagers called Left Behind the Kids. Now, I say all of this, and that's 2004, right? We can talk about 9-11. We can talk about the rhetoric and foreign policy that takes place based upon, in my, just in my humble opinion, like faulty understandings of, of scripture verses and things like this. So all of this is affecting American policy, all of this is affecting the Christian church in America, it's affecting political parties, the whole thing. And what I I'm, what I'm wanna get at is that the fruit of this, right? Like if we look at the fruit of this doctrine, we look at the fruit of the way this is being handled, The fruit of the spirit of FBI God is fear, anxiety, exclusion, hatred, harshness, pride. It's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering. It's just not at all. Like, the fruit of this way of seeing and understanding God is is like antichrist. It's completely against Jesus. And here's why this is important. Because what we see emerging is this, and this truth lays out that a violent vision of God will inevitably lead to a violent people of God. That if our vision and our thinking about God is that God will, will eventually send billions and billions of people to eternal damnation in the fiery pits of a literal hell, we have no problems getting that program started earlier. We don't. We just, we, we, we don't. We, have, we can justify it. So the vision of God creates a The violent vision of God will create a violent people of God. And here's the thing, like, the Bible presents us with two visions of God. (laughs) And this is where the struggle is. There are plenty of verses in the Bible that give us God as Zeus, that paint God as Zeus, a violent, moral monster filled with wrath. They're, they're there. And when I say the Bible, I don't mean the Old Testament. So some of you want to go, well, yeah, that was the Old Testament. No, I'm telling you, it's the whole thing. And you don't want to be here for an hour and a half, so I can't just give you 25,000 of these verses. But here's the deal. It's there. And I want to talk about these two images that are within the Bible, both Old and New Testament. So you go to First Samuel 15, 3, and you can read about what God tells the Israelites to do to the Amalekites, a group of people that bottom line is they own land, It's time to dispossess that land. The text is justifying why this is happening. But here's what it says. Go and strike Amalek and completely destroy everything that he has and do not spare him. This is God speaking. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There is that image of the violent God. And we have to address this. It's there. It's there. It's funny, I don't hear a whole lot of people that are kind of single-issue folks around abortion and, you know, uh, right to life, ever quote this verse for a biblical view on abortion. We don't ever go, oh, this is what the Bible says about abortion, but we don't ever quote this verse because we know this is atrocious. This is horrible. This is absolutely awful. We get it. Like... And and there is that argument that would say, well, you know, it's God. And if God says it's okay, then it's okay. If God does it, then it's moral. Okay, well, but what if God is telling you to do something that we now would look at and go, that is so immoral and monstrous. In Numbers 31, in the case of the Midianites, God tells through Moses to the Israelites, go destroy all the Midianites. Put them under what's called the ban, which is a technical term, which basically is genocide. Destroy them all, they cannot continue to exist. So they go. And the generals and the leaders of the army are merciful, (laughs) merciful, and they show back up, and Moses gets angry at them because they haven't killed the women. So this is what Moses says in Numbers 31. So you spared all the women? He says, now, go, therefore, and kill every male among the children and kill every woman who has had sexual relations with a man but you may spare for yourselves all the girls who have not had sexual relations. So we say, well, if God says it, if God kills, it's okay because God is morally like outside of ourselves, that's fine. But what, when, what about when God says, okay, keep for yourselves the young virginal teenagers so that you can have your own slaves and sex slaves and do what you want with them and marry them, whatever? Like, we know that's repugnant. We know that that's not, but that's the picture, the vision that's given to us of God. You know, well, but again, you're saying, well, Ryan, that's all Old Testament stuff. No, it's not. If, I mean, we can go to Revelation and just like, boom, and put our finger down and find it, you know. But let's look at Paul. Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. Who in the room would consider yourself a disobedient person at some time in your life? Anybody? Yeah, okay, welcome to the club. Right." Well, you have to look forward to the wrath of God, you know. Or we have passages Colossians, which, by the way, both Ephesians and Colossians, it does matter, are, are, like most scholars would say, these are probably not authentic Paul letters. When you look at the authentic Pauline letters, you have a very different Paul than you see in some of these other letters. Not that they're not beautiful and wonderful and we don't gain from them, but it's just an important side note. Colossians 3, Paul says, the writer says, put to death then the parts of you that are earthly, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and the greed that is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. There it is, that wrath of God. You look in Revelation, it's the wrath of God. It's the blood. It's everything. It's Armageddon. And this is the Zeus vision we get, right? And this is the picture we're given. And it's, it's all throughout the pages of Scripture. But here's the good news, right? maybe there's a, there's another vision of god all throughout the bible old testament and new testament this isn't all oh, the old testament bad angry grumpy have a snicker god new testament wonderful happy jesus god right this is everywhere right there are plenty of verses in the bible that paint god depict god as a father this God of nonviolent, merciful, pursuing us with love. Psalm 86:15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth, except for the Amalekites. <laughs> L- Lest you're one of those teenagers who was taken as spoil... I mean, it says, this, this beautiful picture of God's mercy is Psalm 145 again. It says, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Listen to this. The Lord is good to, what's the word? All. Eh, you know, except the Midianites, <laughs> except the Amalekites, right? Except those, those, those women, those, those infants that ha, happened to have been born in the land that we wanted. But this was, it's right there, all over, it's right there. And Jesus, I mean, more than any other place, gives us this vision of the Father, gives us this vision of mercy. And and I think one of the best places we see it is Luke 15, where Jesus tells these three stories, Uh, the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons. The lost coin, woman has one coin, loses it, sweeps everywhere, clears it, finds it, throws a big party the lost sheep one leaves 99 go out find sheep bring it back put it on your arms big celebration the two lost sons are oftentimes called the parable of the prodigal son right what happens? To the peril of the prodigal son. A father has two sons. It starts off with, and one son, the younger, said he wants his he wants his fair share now. He says, "I've got life to live. I don't fit into this household. It's not my jam. Come on, Dad, give me my stuff. Let me go. It's all good." And Dad says, "Okay, here you go. You can have everything. You take it as yours." And he goes and he goes. And he parties. He has a good time. He buys friends. He just enjoys life. And he finds himself broke, empty. The famine comes in. He's got to serve the pigs. Feed the pigs. It's not going so well for him. He says, "I know what i do. Even my father's servants are treated better than this. I'll go and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against you and God. If you'll just have me back as your servant. And surely my father take me. So he goes off. And here's what happens. That Jesus tells us the story, it goes, he says in verse 19, while he was still a long way off, the son, the first son that was off, while he was a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with judgment and wrath And and, No, he's filled with compassion, and he runs to his son, embraces him, and kisses him. The son tries to give him his manipulative speech. I have got all the right words, and he's like, oh, be quiet, be quiet, come on. And they put the coat on him, and they give him the ring, and they throw the big party, and it's wonderful. And while this party's going on, the other son is out in the field. He's coming in from working, and he hears all the noise, and he asks one of the servants, what's going on? what's going on? And the servant says, oh, you didn't hear the good news. Your brother is back. Your father's thrown this big party, slaughtered the calf where everybody's drinking. It's awesome. Come on in. And the text says that Jesus tells, says that this son, the older one, he got very angry and he wouldn't go back into the house. And so the father said, fine, stay out. I don't even want you in here. That's your attitude towards your no. What does the father do? He goes out and he pleads with the other lost son. Everybody's lost in the story, right? And it's the father going out, the father going out says, No, come in, come in. And he pleads with him and he pleads with him. He says, Everything I have is yours, but your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Come in. And so we get this second vision painted all throughout the Bible of this God. And it's painted and depicted beautifully, this story in Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. We have this father hovering over this disheveled, broken, sandals are broken, the clothes, his his hair is shaved in shame and scorn. And you have the household, all have it all together, but you have the father embracing look of compassion and mercy. And so Jesus reveals in the ultimate in his ultimate, like, beautiful story and throughout his whole life, that Jesus, this way of Jesus, is God. And we would say it like this in big theology, that that Jesus reveals the eternal, immutable Logos of God. The word immutable means unchanging. It can't mutate. This is a, a fundamental belief that Christians have held in every century, that God is unchanging, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what happens is, we see visions of God everywhere in our world. But in Jesus, we see the true, immutable, eternal one. What God actually is, the Logos. What John says in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. and The Logos was God. And what happens is the Logos takes on flesh and dwells among us. And what was this Logos? What was this very essence? Right? It was love your enemies. It's a little different than the Amalekites and the Midianites. But God's immutable. God doesn't change. But Jesus reveals God as one who says, love your enemies, who prays, Father, forgive them to those that would crucify him, who tells his followers to pray for those who persecute you. Like, this is it. See, what Jesus reveals is that God is nonviolent, that God is forgiveness, that God is resistance to oppressors, that God is inclusion, that God is grace, that God is distributive justice. This is what Jesus reveals to us, and that's what makes it so beautiful. And that's why Jesus is the framework for understanding all these. Because we can find the Bible verses for them all. But we've been given Jesus to help us interpret and understand how all that works. And so here's the thing I don't want us to miss. Because we have to understand that these two images of God, these two visions, these two understandings of God are there for us in the Bible. It does not hide it. It doesn't, it doesn't try to downplay it. They're there. But we have a choice to make as Christians. And here's the choice. Will we choose the the radical, nonviolent vision of God that's incarnate in Jesus, or will we choose the Bible's normal, violent vision of God incarnate in civilization? Both are in the Bible. So we have these two choices that the Bible gives us. The Bible at times will give us a vision of the normalcy, what some scholars call the normalcy of civilization, violence. Violence portrayed into God? Or will we choose the radicality of God, which is nonviolent, loving, forgiveness, inclusion? And we see that all throughout the pages of Scripture. We make that choice. See, we always have the choice between Armageddon or the banquet. We always have the choice between the sword of Caesar or the cross of Christ. Now, this isn't like the choice between like an, one of the oldest heresies of like, well, there's this God in the Old Testament that Jesus came and conquered, so there's two different gods. That's not what we're saying. We're saying there's two different visions of God, and there always is two different visions of God in this world, and the Bible reflects that deep reality. And we read the Bible, making the choice to put our faith in Jesus and saying, this is the beloved Son in whom God is pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> Don't listen to Moses. Don't listen to Elijah. Don't don't listen. Like, I'm there in all of that, uh, breaking through, but it's Jesus. And so, tomorrow, as a follower of Jesus, as a person who's trying to live this ethic of love and grace in our lives, what does that mean for tomorrow? Well, many of us are going to read our Bibles. That's wonderful. I want to encourage you to read your Bible looking for the assertions and the subversions of God of Jesus' path to peace, that as we read these scriptures, as we look at them, we're constantly saying, is this an assertion of the radicality of God, breaking into culture, breaking into human understanding of the world, breaking into the way of violence, breaking into the, the thought that says, well, we get the Roman thought that says we get, you know, peace through victory, and the Jesus way that says, no, 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 you get peace through justice. <laughs> like, there's a, it's just a different program. And so we read the Bible looking for both of these, and we also read with an understanding that every every time we talk about God, it's a metaphor. And so this concept of the wrath of God, we need to understand it as a biblical metaphor. It's grounded in the books of the Bible. It's grounded in a time and place, but it's referring to the natural consequences of going against the grain of love, what one author says, the grain of love. When I live my life and I go against the grain of love, I experience what the Bible would call the wrath of God, what I would tell my children are consequences for being mean. <laughs> this is what happens when you're mean. This is what happens when you're selfish. This is what happens when you don't think about your neighbor. I would never tell my children. I hope you would never tell Well, God's just going to get you. You told a lie. God's going to get you. No, like there's a natural consequence. You told a lie. I don't trust you. Maybe not one lie. Maybe until 25, right? So we see this great in in Psalm 7, 12 through 16. The first three verses are the metaphor. The second three verses are kind of the enlightened version of this is what's happening. Look what it says. It says, God is a just judge. Metaphor. Powerful and patient, not exercising anger every day. If one does not repent, God sharpens his sword, strings and readies the bow, prepares his deadly shafts, makes arrows blazing thunderbolts. Metaphor. (laughs) Metaphor for a deep reality but not a description of God in actuality. Because here's the next three verses. Look what it says. Consider how one conceives iniquity, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to deception. He digs a hole and bores it deep, but he falls into the pit he has made. His malice turns back upon his head. His violence falls on his own skull." It's right there, right next. It's a beautiful illustration of this idea of metaphor. And, 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 and when you're in a culture where everything is the gods, you, that's just how you think about it. So is there something that the Bible calls the wrath of God that we would call natural consequence? Absolutely. And just because it's a metaphor, that doesn't mean that the consequences are no less real or painful. But it's, it is important that we recognize it's not this Divine being that's zap, you know. Because here's the really difficult shift for folks like me that grew up in the in that massive (laughs) implosion of end times, God sitting on a throne getting ready to judge you, is that I've come to this deep conclusion that there is a danger when we talk about God as a being versus God as being. Okay? And this is tricky, but there's something dangerous when I say God loves versus God is love. There's something right about that metaphor that God loves, right? I'm not saying that God doesn't love, but when I say God is just, that's different than saying God is justice, right? God, and that's the logos, that's what I mean, that's the eternal logos that is, I think, coursing through the fabric of our universe, that, that it's producing life. And guiding. And and so there is this reality that God is love, that God is justice, that God is grace, that God is forgiveness. This is the logos, the divine logos. But here's the thing, here's the beauty of it. That being, that existence, that thing that is beyond all took on flesh and became a human being in the person of Jesus, a reflection of that in its most truest form as a human being. And that's healthy and safe. And now because of that, I don't have to be afraid of retiring metaphors that become unhealthy and dangerous. We just become more and more violent. We see it all around us. It's televised. This idea of wrath of God that now I get to say I am the wrath of God. I'm the tip of the spear. I believe right. I get to do this stuff. It's dangerous. Uh, Metaphors about an army of God, dangerous right now. We can now, I mean, we can end our planet like with three buttons like, it's time that we get rid of some of these metaphors about God. As we wrap up here, um, which, believe it or not, I've gone shorter than last service, but <laughs> in 1999, there was a, a scholar, a New Testament scholar named John Dominic Crossan, and uh, Crossan was giving a lecture in California. He was, a, he was really seminal in the, the Jesus seminar, the, the, the work on the historical Jesus, a Christian whose faith is really grounded in nonviolent historical Jesus. And he said this, and this is important for this topic. He said, the age of enlightenment has been replaced by the age of entertainment. So the age of enlightenment has been replaced by the age of entertainment. Now, what was the major conflict within the age of enlightenment? It was the conflict between science and religion, right? We're moving out of having to see everything as first order God into understanding science, helping us understand how God is working in our world. So he says this, this is what he says, is the future clash... Will not be between science and religion, but between both of them and fantasy. This is 1999. Remember what's happening with all of the end time stuff, all the rhetoric in our uh, foreign policy around Armageddon and, and being chosen by God, like all of that stuff. And he says, what I'm trying to imagine is what Christianity must do to clearly and honestly distinguish itself from fantasy. He says, if it does not do that, if Christianity doesn't do that, it will certainly survive, but only as an important and even lucrative subdivision of worldwide entertainment and global illusion. If Christianity can't figure out how to say, what if it is real and true and affecting change in this world, and what if it is fantasy of raptures and people on horses coming out of the sky? If we can't do that, we will just Christianity is just going to become a major global illusion, and it's going to become part of this worldwide entertainment. He says that in 1999, and what happens in the year 2000? The first of six Left Behind trilogy movies come out, and that really sparks now interest. Book sales go up. Everybody starts digging in. 9/11 happens. We now have the rhetoric of God has put me in charge, me in place, what's happening in the Middle East. These are the signs of the times, all this in time. And we're moving into fantasy. It's faith-based fantasy, but it's fantasy nonetheless. There's a Bible verse for it, but it's fantasy that produces evil and harm and violence and affects lives, real lives. So he says he has two bins, and this is what I would encourage us to do, is to create two bins for inputs that come into our lives. Okay so imagine you have two bins two two like storage bins and, and we're all bombarded with inputs that deal with like our spiritual lives and church and faith and the bible and all kinds of stuff. And he says there's two bins. One is the bin of unconcern and one is the bin of disbelief. Right? So the bin of unconcern is where we put that stuff that we go I just I can't take any time to worry about it. <laughs> I've got too much. I have to put all my energy and focus on the bin of what I will disbelieve, that I will work against, that I will be anti. And, and if I get lost in these things, so I just have to put him in the bin of unconcern and let him go. And so, in the bin of unconcern, he talks about things like magical powers, conspiracy theories, alien abductions. Just not going to waste any of my Christian energy on it. Uh, you know, for me, I would say things like, I'm not going to argue with you about Harry Potter. Like, whatever, read it. It's, it's it, whatever. I'm not, it, not going to spend any time on that. I'm not going to spend any time on how a person should be baptized. You want to be sprinkled? You want to be dunked? You want me to hold a garden hose over your face? Well, I don't really care. I don't think Jesus cares. I think it's an ancient symbol of something. I, I honestly wonder sometimes if Jesus would be like, I can't believe you guys are still baptizing people. That's so weird. Nobody does that anymore. Like, sometimes I wonder if Jesus would say stuff like that. And I know that really is frightening. And I'll still baptize people, and I think it's powerful. But I just, like, how we do that, I don't care. How we sing, what songs we sing, you know, eh, whatever, lights, fog, Pews, chairs, how you should dress, going to church. I just that, eh, whatever. I was going, those go in my bin of unconcern. But he says the bin of disbelief is where we put those things that we relentlessly oppose as a Christian, as a person who is living for Jesus' program on this world, in this world. He says things like discrimination and oppression and homophobia and patriarchy and injustice and violence and force and empire, those have to get put into the bin of disbelief. They have, and we have to use our effort and our energy to present God's vision for the world of justice, of nonviolent resistance, of grace and inclusion. So the question becomes, the violent God, right, the violent God of judgment and wrath—all of this stuff that gets up, all this stuff that's out there about the end times and the Left Behind series, all those things—the things that people want to come up to me and say, "I watch the show," and they talk about it, and they say, "This is what's happening," and look at this person. This person's now the Antichrist, and this person's the prophet, and this person is the beast. Where do I put all that? Does that go in the bin of unconcern, like "Oh my gosh, it's fantasy," or does it go in the bin of disbelief? Where does it go? And I would agree wholeheartedly with Crossan that it has to go in the bin of disbelief. It has to, because there's too much at stake in that fantasy. Why? Because a violent vision of God leads to a violent people of God. And so we have to say emphatically, that is not who God is. That is not the nature of God. Yes, we are shown these two visions of God, but what God is truly like is seen in the person of Jesus, because a violent vision of God leads to a violent people of God. And so I did a little Googling this week of sermon series that are out there in our churches in America. This is one, Combat Faith. We have a picture of a soldier armed, going out. Let's study 2 Peter. I found these four, all one, one company that will brand this sermon series for our churches, The Way of the Warrior. Here's a sword ready to be swung. Where are the warriors? Spiritual warfare with knights and armor. Choose your weapon. One I thought was the most vile, antichrist image for a sermon series with a gun and bullets. Choose your weapon. One, a warrior in the image of my father, like a Roman centurion almost. The armor of God. I was sitting there yesterday And uh, I was scrolling through my phone, you know, doing like what we all do, a lull on a TV show or whatever. And and there was a person I know who's a pastor who they posted a song on their Facebook feed. I'd never heard of the song, but the title of the song got me thinking because of the topic. And the title of the song was called um, God and a Gun. I think that was the title of the song. So I looked up the lyrics. So I got to find out. There's a link to it. So I linked to it. And this is the lyric of the song. Uh, so, this is the chorus. So, say what you want to about the things I hold true and the fabric that makes up this red, white, and blue, because I'll fight for my country till the day that I'm done. I've still got my God and I've still got my gun. Here's verse two I was raised up to stand up for what I thought was right, a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye, and do unto others as you'd be done to. If you do me wrong, mister, got it coming to you. I still got my God, I still got my gun. Like it matters. <laughs> it matters. How about this one? My feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once, in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them, and who God's truth was greatest, not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years with deepest emotion, I recognize more profoundly than ever before the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. As a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. Adolf Hitler. It matters. Whatever happened to beating our swords into plowshares? The great vision of Scripture. The great assertion of God. So how does this idea of reading Scripture, of of saying, yes, we are given a vision of God, but it is... It is, it is completely overthrown by the person of Jesus, and we now have to interpret and read Scripture through this lens and know where we got it wrong within the Bible about God and where Jesus shows us we get it right, where it happens even beyond post-Jesus, our natural tendency to go back into what is normal for civilization. How does this bring God's vision closer to our What will happen? Here's what I think could happen. We might not destroy ourselves in the name of God and Armageddon. Like we just might, as a species, avoid nuclear holocaust. If we can't get this image as Christians of the nonviolent resistance of Jesus, of the inclusion of Jesus, of the grace of God that is beyond our understanding, eventually the button will be pushed and we'll do it in the name of God. But if we can get this and if we can be brave enough to say, no, this is, this image, this way of describing God, even in our sacred text, is wrong. And that's what makes our, test, our text sacred because they show us where our tendency is to put God into our image. But Jesus shows us that has nothing to do with God. You say, well, that's really nice, Ryan. Save the planet. I mean, I gotta go to work tomorrow. <laughs> I got my kids. Okay, we might save our families from a love that keeps a record of wrong. You probably know the story. Maybe you've done it. Maybe you've been a recipient of it. But there was, is and was a phenomenon within Christian families of the disowning of children because of the choices they make in life, because of the way they are, because of their sexuality, because of, of their economics, because of whatever, because of some decision they made. There's this, there's this belief that I can just disown my children. Where does that come from? It comes from a belief that God will eventually disown you if you're bad enough, if you live an unrepentant enough lifestyle, God will eventually cast you out of God's presence. And so this is the most loving thing I can do. This is what I'm called to do. And it's destroying families. And we say, no, no, it's, it, you know, what's really destroying the American families is the idea of baking a cake for a gay couple. Give me a break. It's the, it, it, it's just, it, it, it's manipulative religious insanity in my opinion. That's, dist- no, we, we, will, we will disown our own children for some Some moral standard that we aren't even sure where it. So it matters for our families. And it matters for our churches because I actually believe if we get this vision, religion itself might start organizing around something that actually matters peacemaking. I believe what we're doing here is invaluable because it is the very heart of the Father. It's what Jesus wants to be done in this earth. As in heaven, on earth, it's collaborative, it's the work. And we can do that and we can trust and not have to worry about this violent God because of what Jesus says. So what is God inviting you into today? As we wrap up, I know I said that 10 minutes ago, but here's the truth. Leave FBI God and spirituality. Find healing from fear and anxiety. And that is a difficult process. It's a blinding process. When you've been ingrained like I was and engrafted in this idea that one day in the twinkling of an eye, it could all end are you ready? You live your life in constant fear and anxiety and that has nothing to do with the way of Jesus. But it is, a, it is a journey away and out of that spirituality that is so difficult. It's going to be like what your experience is when you walk out of this room where all the blinds are closed and you walk out and it hurts like the light from the atrium because it's so sunny outside. And what do you want to do? You want to just go back into the dark room. But what you have to do is just stay and suffer through the transition a little bit. So maybe God's inviting you to start reading the Bible with a set of eyes to see these two visions, the radicality of God, the normalcy of civilization, and own it and say, that's what's happening here. And be grateful that that's what we're given because we can see ourselves in it. And maybe this is like a whole lot for you, and you're like, what do I do? Well... Um, if you check that box that talks about, I have a list of books and resources and podcasts that if you want to like, listen and just begin to explore that might help you overcome a fear of FBI God, Like you really are like, this makes so much sense to me, but I don't know where to go. I've always thought this didn't make sense. It's always been hard for me, the violence. And I have some, I think, resources that you might want to thumb through. Just check that box. We'll email them to you here today. And then you can just kind of work through that. But I hope all of us experience this the vision of God incarnate in Jesus that really is just too good to be true. And we can sing that it's not too good to be true, but it is. I mean, it is just too good to be true because it's just so hard for our framework to get, but that's the invitation I think God wants for us. So take about two minutes, finish filling out that connect card, enjoy a reprise of this song, listen to it with maybe a fresh set of ears, and I'll be back to speak a blessing over you and get you out.